If you would please turn your Bible to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. We're coming to a conclusion of this section, the book of Proverbs. But the bad news is, is we're going to handle the whole chapter today. That's the whole chapter. So, But I think we can get through that. Proverbs chapter 9. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for just a good week, an exhausting week for those who worked at Vacation Bible School, working with those kids. But, Lord, it was a productive week, profitable week for the gospel, for the expansion of the gospel, and for the building up of the body of Christ and the, and the, and the kingdom of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would now just allow us to get rid of the distractions and be able to focus on your word May we glean some things today from this passage that will help us. Lord, may we also apply it to our life, examine our own selves, and see how we can uh, use this in our daily life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Proverbs chapter 9 is the conclusion, uh, the last chapter in the largest section, in the biggest, uh, well, in the first section, the first major section of the book of Proverbs. The first nine chapters, Solomon is laying down for us a foundation for wisdom, right? We've understood that. We've come to know that. And he's preparing us for wisdom that he's going to, to give us, this, these pithy little statements. If you turn over just or one more verse, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon. So the end of chapter 9, he has completed his teaching on wisdom, and then he goes right into some Proverbs, and he lists, and that goes on for about 15 chapters, 14 or 15 chapters, and really throughout the rest of the book. That's the wisdom part. Those are the pithy little statements. But for now, for these first nine chapters, he has taught us how to think and laid the foundation about wisdom. That is, the skill of living life, which can only be done through the principles of God's Word, and to the glory of God, the skill of living life to the glory of God. That's the short version of it. And in this passage, in this last chapter, Solomon is drawing everything to a conclusion, and he does so by comparing and contrasting. Comparing and contrasting. Now, that's a good way to teach. He's comparing wisdom, and he compares that with foolishness or folly. So he's comparing wisdom and folly. Now, that's a good way to teach, like I said. If you were uh, working uh, to identify counterfeit money, you would bring up the counterfeit and you put put it side by side with the authentic, the real money, and you would compare it and you would contrast it. And you could be able to tell which is the true and which is the fault. And that's what Solomon wants his son to do. wants his son to be able to have that kind of discernment. But this is easy. This should be an easy one. This would be like comparing real money with monopoly money. It's similar, but, but not really even close. And you're going to see that as we go through this comparison. And his, his son should be able to see this. But on top of that, Solomon is forcing us to examine our own lives, examine our own hearts, so that we can prepare ourselves for the wisdom and these pithy little wisdom statements uh, he's going to present to his son. And Solomon, his desires for his son is for his son to recognize the wisdom of God, to internalize it, and to be able to walk in the way of God's wisdom 
for the glory of God. That's the goal. And we believers, that's the same goal that we should have. That's the principle that every believer should be able to recognize God's wisdom, internalize it, and walk in the way of God's wisdom for the glory of God. Now, the question is, and the question that this passage answers for us is, how do we do that? How do we prepare our hearts to receive that wisdom? Because when we look at the church today, I'm not sure that the church is ready to have that kind of discernment. Not sure that we can actually do that. Can the church, does the church know the authentic word enough? Does the church know the word enough to be able to compare it with the counterfeit of the world, the thinking of the world, and come out with the right conclusion? Because I believe that Satan is so subtle today. And it is, it is hard, it is difficult to know which is the wisdom of God and which is the counterfeit. And there's two parts for discernment, and Solomon lays this out in this passage. First of all, let's look at this one. There's, there's only two parts, two points here, so we'll move quickly through this. The first point being this, is that understanding, we must understand the clear distinction between wisdom and the alternative. Understand the clear wisdom, clear distinction between wisdom and the alternative, right? The clear distinction. Now, Solomon does that, again, by comparing and contrasting. He compares wisdom, and that's the first six verses. If you look at the passage, the first six verses, he gives us a a description of wisdom. And then the last six verses, from verses 13 down to 18, he gives us a description of folly. But in the middle six verses, now there's 18 total verses, the middle six verses, many times poetic books do this. They put the heart of the matter, they put the juicy part of the passage right in the middle so you don't miss it, right? So you have the comparison as bookends and right in the middle you have the heart of the passage. That's the layout of this chapter. Now let's look at the distinction here. He's comparing two hostess. And these are two prominent ladies and influential ladies who are inviting you, inviting all of us to their house for a banquet. They're throwing a banquet and they're inviting, they're, they're bringing us into their house to, to share food, a banquet together. And the first one is wisdom. Look at the first verse. Wisdom has built her house. Now, wisdom, we've already looked at this a little bit. The wisdom was established by God. God built wisdom into his creation so that we can see it. And it and it points us to God. It points us to God, but it also reveals God to us. But also, wisdom is bound up in God's word. It's bound up in God's word. When we when we look at God's word, we're we're listening to God and his wisdom here in this word and Christ, of course, is the epitome of, of that wisdom as well. Compare that, this wisdom, to verse 13, and we have the lady folly. He's introducing us to folly. Verse 13, the woman folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. Now, let's just stop right there. There's a comparison here. Wisdom has been established by God, but folly, she is boisterous, she is naive, and knows nothing. The word folly akin to foolishness, or foolish, and we know in Proverbs, we, we know that the fool has said in his heart, there is no what? There is no God. 
And that's foolishness, and he's bound up in folly. But actually, the word means just silliness. Silliness. We're like, um, it's like fleas on the back of a dog who are debating. And you've seen that cartoon. Remember, that you've seen this cartoon. You've got a few fleas. They're having a little meeting on the back of a dog. All you see around them is just the hair, and they're debating on whether the dog really exists or not. Well, that's silly. But they don't see the dog. All they see is the hair that are debating. You know what? We see God around us and it's silly for us to debate whether God exists. The evidence of Him is all around it. It's just silliness. Silliness. She's boisterous. That's clamorous. She's muddled in her thinking, muddled in her communication, unclear. She's naive. She knows nothing. Knows nothing of godliness. Knows nothing of godly honor or shame or respect. Knows nothing of godly morals, but she does know seduction. She knows seduction. Now look at the, look at the preparation of these two ladies. Look back at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewned out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has, uh, verse 2, she has also set her table. Now, this is a lot of preparation. This is bringing order and structure. She has put in a lot of time and a lot of preparation. She has mixed her wine, it says. She has built her house, seven pillars. It's just a large, it's just referring to a large house. She can accommodate anybody, everybody that would want to come. By the way, the mixing of the wine, they would mix wine with spices and even water. They would water it down. It would be more of a purification thing. It would be mixed. There's a lot of preparation. She has worked hard. She has prepared. And she is ready. That's wisdom. Look, compare that with verse 14. Folly, she sits. She sits at her door, at the door of her house. She sits in high places. Now, there's not much effort put forth here, put forth by folly. She's sitting. That's what she's... We see this. She finally makes it to a place of prominence so that she can have influence, apparently, in the city. But from there, she just calls out and she just invites there. And she's not very productive. She's not very productive. Uh, and why is that? Because man's natural inclination is to, to be foolish. Man's natural inclination is just to folly anyway. To be silly. Let me show you uh, this in, in verse 14b. And she is, essentially she's just excluding God from the uh, philosophy. She's excluding God from everything. And she is just being silly. Now let's look at the invitation. Let's do that uh, before we jump the gun here. Look at the invitation in verse 3. She has, this is wisdom... She has sent out her maidservants. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here to him who lacks understanding, she says. And she goes into the invitation. That's the invitation. She has sent out her maidservants. This is a formal invitation. She has planned for this and she is ready. Again, that's wisdom. She is prepared. But folly, on the other hand, verse 15, she calls out who pass by who are making their path straight. Now, there's a little bit of a twist there, isn't there? Those who are making their path straight, they are making their path straight. The wise man, he is trusting in God. Remember 
uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, he's trusting in the Lord with all his heart, leaning not in his own understanding. In all his ways, he will make his path. God will make his path straight. Right? So if you compare that verse with this verse, these people are making their path straight. And the idea is, is that they are going about their life just making life make sense for them. They're just doing that. God's not planning their life. They're not submitting to God's will and to God's understanding. They've got the plan. And the idea here is that they are ripe for the picking. They're ripe for the picking. Not, uh, folly is, is, is ready to, uh, they're ready to just turn in. They're just following. They're just following. Following folly. And it's silliness. They're pretending, they're living a life as though God does not exist. Look at the agenda here. You see the agenda. In verse 5, we see wisdom. Here's wisdom's agenda. Here's wisdom's, uh, uh, what wisdom is offering. He says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed. That's wisdom. She is prepared. She says, come and have food and wine. These are necessities of life. These are things that are legitimate needs of people. But look down in verse 16 and compare that with folly. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, you see the the difference here. You see a little bit of a contrast here. Folly is saying, here, stolen water is sweet. She's, she's changing things. She's appealing to the flesh. You don't have to work for it. This is appealing to the lazy, the, the ones who want to do things in secret, and she's twisting. And what she's doing, folks, is making, calling good evil and, and evil good. She's twisting values. And, folks, this is where our world is today, isn't it? They want to change history. They want to go back and change and make things good that are evil and evil that are good. They want to, they want to explain godly principles in a wrong way. And they will twist. And they will turn. And they will, they will try to explain away God in whatever way they can do that. And they then accept God's values. Notice that there is a connection between wisdom both wisdom and folly, there's always a connection between those two and morals, morals, values, principles. And ultimately here, folks, it's between God and Satan. And that's what we're beginning to see. Look at the result. Verse 6, we see the result of wisdom. Verse 6 says, forsake your folly and live. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of Understanding. That's the result. What she is promising is life and understanding. But one thing that you have to do is you have to forsake your own folly. You have to forsake that. Compare that with, compare that with verse 18. But he does not know, he does not know that death is there. The result of, of folly is just death. You're dining there where decaying bodies, literally death, the dead uh, is the departed spirits. Essentially, it's just rotting flesh. And they don't even know. It says at the end of verse 18 that 
her guests are in the depths of Sheol. They've already been caught. They're already there. They're trapped. They're in Sheol itself. Death and hell. Now, that's the comparison comparisons between life and death. And this is a general comparison. But the main distinction is that wisdom offers uh, legitimate needs, the, the meeting of legitimate needs and yields life. But folly offers an appeal to the flesh and it yields yields death. Now, this is a comparison, folks, ultimately between God's wisdom and Satan's wisdom or the world's wisdom. Satan's attempts or uh, attempts to or empty promises, his lies. Now, this is exactly what we see going on today. We see two different lifestyles being presented, two different lifestyles being offered, two different worldviews, two different ways of life, two different value systems, and ultimately, folks, two different sources. And what you have is you have glasses that you look through that color everything, everything that you see. And sometimes, the, the, you know, the, we, we have philosophies today that, are, you know, color our, our thinking. Some people look through the, the lens of, of race and they see everything as a race issue. It's always black or white. Or you see everything through the, the, the lens of those who have or have not. The poor and the rich. Everything is colored in that way. Or everything is progressive or conservatism. And you've got different philosophies. And they, they see through different lenses. And they everything is colored in their world because of the lens that they see through. And that's, that's what you see going on here. You've got two different... Systems. Now, here's the, my problem. Here's the problem that I think the church has. The church is more like kids who, who don't see this battle, who don't see the battle between Satan and God, who don't see the battle between good and evil going on. They're kids. They're playing. They're playing. Kids, when they're playing, we saw these kids this week. And they're playing. Man, they don't, they don't pay attention to the adult world. They don't pay attention to what's what's going on in the adult life. They're they're just, you know, they've got their little stick figures. They've got their little toys. And they're just playing. They're just having fun. And the church seems like they're just playing. But they're like kids that are playing. But they're playing on a battlefield. And there's a battle raging around them. And much of the church is not even aware that the battle is going on. And it's a battle between good and evil. It's a spiritual battle. And that's that's a problem. You've got two different worldviews, and much of the church is just playing as though there really is no battle going on, and it's different ways of thinking. Now, I want us, I want you to to realize this. Turn over to Colossians chapter two. Here's here's one verse that we need to know. In this, the way we think, folks, is important, and and we we have to understand proper thinking. Verse 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive. Now look at the terminology that he's using. No one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Now, he's, there's two different philosophies going on here. And Paul is saying, don't be taken captive to the world's philosophies. And we know that Satan is is in charge of this world. 
We see that. And we know Satan's got his philosophies, his wisdom that he is offering. He's got this counterfeit. And Paul says, don't buy into that. And I think the church is, they're just not ready. They're still immature. They're still just playing church. And they're playing on this spiritual battlefield. And they still see sin as just, oh, sin is just pornography. Sin is just being drunk or the words that we use or the bad words that we use or sin is just smoking. That's foolishness. Folks, sin is the way we think. It's buying into the world system. That is sin. Oh, as long as I don't sin, then I'm okay. No, the reality is you don't buy into that system of thinking. You don't buy into that philosophy. That's the point. That's what Solomon is Wanting for his son, don't even think like the world. You buy into God's wisdom, you allow that to influence your life. Now, let's just think about this for a little bit. There's a couple of misunderstandings here that I want us to know. Number one is that people think that that wisdom is just for the serious Christian. It's not for me. I can come and, and I can listen or it's kind of optional for uh, for believers. It, it's only for the really strong, those who are serious about their Christian life. As long as I confess Christ and uh, I don't have to live by this wisdom. I want to be a Christian and so I accept Christ, but I don't want to live like it. I don't want to have anything to do with this wisdom. Folks, that kind of thinking is not in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. That is not a heart. That is not the heart. It's not the nature of a true believer to think like that. And we have a desire, folks. True believers have a desire to please God and to live our lives according to God's wisdom so that so that we do please Him. And we must set aside our own folly, our own thinking, our own understanding. That's the only two options here, folks. Either you're thinking like God thinks, godly wisdom, or you are thinking like the world. That's the two options. Let me give you another, just a misunderstanding here. Is that uh, this whole idea is that uh, I'm not choosing folly. I'm not choosing folly. I'm a good guy and, and I'm not choosing folly. Listen, how do you choose folly? Think about that. How do you choose that? How do you choose that life, that worldview, you don't have to do anything, do you? You just kind of go along with the flow of society. You don't have to stand against anything. You just go with the flow. You stay on the broad road. You stay within the principles that Satan is lined out, that he is ruling the world by. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is in charge of the course of this world. And he is leading this world. And all we have to do is just float. All we have to do is just float downstream, just go our way. And the world's values will become our values. So you don't have to do anything to choose folly. It just fits in nicely with our, our sinful flesh. But we have to remember that death is there. That death is there. Folks, the hard part is disciplining our flesh. The hard part is standing against the flow, going up against the current. The hard part is living differently than our friends. Living differently than the rest of the world. Taking a stand. That's the hard part, folks. 
But that's what God's wisdom calls us to do. Understand that wisdom and to live out that wisdom. And it's going to be contrary to the world around us. And we need to understand, uh, we need to have a clear understanding of folly and wisdom. Now let's go to the next point. We have to cultivate a heart to receive wisdom. We have to cultivate a heart to receive wisdom. In the middle six verses here, Solomon is forcing us to evaluate our own mind. And he, he's anticipating, remember, we have had this, this invitation to these, these two banquets here. And uh, we have this invitation, and Solomon can anticipate, based upon the reactions of these invitations, which direction you're going to go. And it's based upon your nature. It's based upon your nature. How, in other words, how you react exposes the condition of your heart. Now, that's the logic, that's the understanding that Solomon is giving here. And he lays out three principles. They seem to be random. They all deal with the heart. Now, look at these. The first principle, the humble heart of a wise man will receive correction and instruction. Look at verse 7. Here's the principle. He lays out this principle for us. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who uh, reproves a a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Let's stop right there. You have two men there. You have the scoffer and you have the, the wicked man. And they've been informed, they've been corrected or reproved, they've been chastened or admonished. They don't like that because their character, a scoffer, is one who jeers and one who has contempt for other people. And they then, they respond by their very nature, they respond with insults, with dishonoring other people, with wickedness. And you can tell they're going to react. They're not going to accept Wisdom. Look at the end then of verse, of verse 8. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. There's a sharp difference there, isn't there? Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in, uh, increase his learning. Now that's a, a sharp difference. Now what's the difference here? The heart of the the wise man, he welcomes correction. He welcomes instruction because he has seen in his own mind. He says, I know that in me there dwells no good thing. Then he looks outside himself and he recognizes God's standard. And he brings God's standard in and says, I want to live to this standard. I want to please God. And folks, that is that is humility. That's humility. And that is the the foundation, that's the bedrock for wisdom, is humility. Now pride, the pride-filled heart, it cannot accept the fact that it could be wrong. And you hear people say, well, you can't come in and and tell me what to do. You can't come in and and destroy my way of, of thinking. Everything is relative. There's no absolutes. And folks, that is folly. They're buying into folly. As Christians, we are commanded to take every thought, what? Every thought captive. The Word of God comes into our life and tells us how to think. It corrects our thinking and it instructs our thinking. And that, folks, takes humility. 
It has to start with humility. Today, folks, we have too many people who are way too sensitive. Way too sensitive. You can't correct them. You can't admonish them. The children are the same way. Can't correct them. No, don't want to be told what to do. Even the appearance of you judging them. Even just, just appearing to judge them. They can't handle that. They don't like reproof. But wisdom, on the other hand, wisdom is different than the wise man. Wisdom, by very nature, folks, instructs. It, it, it calls into question the way we think and exposes our heart. There's a vast difference there. We cannot be like the world. We need to welcome correction, welcome instruction. We need to cultivate in us a heart of humility. How do you handle correction, folks? How do you handle instruction? How do you handle reproof and, and judgment? Do you retaliate? Do you, do you retaliate with anger and, and hurl insults when your wife says something, men, to correct you? Can your, can your prideful heart handle that? Or do you take matters into your own hands and, and vengeance is mine? And, or do you, do you just clam up and say, I'm going to teach him. I'm going to be silent for a while. Or do you begin to play this political game and pit people against other people? And folks, that is not a heart of humility. That is a heart of filled with pride. And we have to have, we have to cultivate a heart. heart of a wise man is holy, holy welcomes correction and instruction. The next principle, found in verse 10, it says the, the heart of the wise is bent toward God. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, he goes back to the very theme of the book. That's the very theme of the book. You've heard that before, the fear of the Lord. And that's a prerequisite of of Wisdom. You cannot have wisdom. That's the starting place. You must fear the Lord. And this isn't a, a fear of dread or untrusting the Lord or a fear of terror of the Lord. You say, well, what does the fear of the Lord mean? First of all, it's a theological concept, isn't it? It's a, the, it's a theology, a theological perspective. The wise man, he knows, he has knowledge of God. He is aware that God is a holy God. And a God of wrath. He's also a God of, of grace, but he is a God of wrath. And the, the wise, wise man knows when within himself there is sinfulness. And God rewards the faithful and he punishes the, the unfaithful with death. And so, folks, this logically he humbles himself before God. And that's just the fear of the Lord. It's brokenness, submission to God. In fact, it's, it's the picture of salvation, isn't it? It's a redemptive relationship of reverence and awe before God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. But it's also a practical perspective of life. It's an attempt to, to shape one's worldview. And it's the, the seedbed of, that cultivates uh, wisdom. The fear of the Lord, folks, is simply that we seek God's wisdom. We seek God's values. We seek God's principles. We want His approval for our life. We want His blessing. We want to please Him. We want to glorify Him with our life. 
And so that brings us to another application. Do you care what God thinks about you more than what other people think about you? Paul came to the conclusion in his life, he says, I don't care what other people think about me. I'm not trying to please men. Either you're trying to please men or you're trying to please God. Including in that, you might just be trying to please yourself, which is a man as well. But it causes us to evaluate. Listen, are we just doing things externally just to please men? Do we come to church just to make people think that we're spiritual? Do we say the right things? Do we do the right things just for external sake? Or is there in your heart and in my heart, is there a real desire to please God? Is that there? We have to ask ourselves that question. The heart of the wise man is bent toward God. And the third principle here, and then we'll close with this. The heart of the wise man has a firm grasp on the sowing, reaping principle. Look at verse 11 and 12. For by me, this is wisdom, for by me, your days will be multiplied and and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise... You will be wise. You are wise to yourself. If you are a scoffer or if you scoff, you alone bear it. Now, essentially what it's saying here is that you are responsible. You will suffer the consequences or the benefits of the decision that you make. It's about you, you or yours. That's numbered a number of times that that word is used in there. This is the strongest Verse really in scripture about personal responsibility. The wise man knows, folks, that we will someday individually stand before God and we will give an account for our life. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for anyone else. No one can can do that for us. We can't share that load. I can't choose for you. I can't suffer the consequences for you. It's like a garden, folks. It's like a garden. We, we plant the seed, we cultivate that soil, we plant the seed, and the decisions that we make on a daily basis, they ripen, it ripens into a character. And that character then determines our destiny, forecasts our future, either heaven or hell. And it's based upon the decisions that you make. Who are you following? In the heart of the wise man, has a firm grasp of the reaping, sowing. He knows, he knows the reaping, sowing principle. Now, let's just bring this to a conclusion here. Folks, we must cultivate a heart of, of wisdom. The direction of our life comes from the condition of our heart. So we have to work on the heart. Either the heart is yielding to God and God's wisdom, or the heart is yielding to its own self. Its own understanding, its own folly, and ultimately Satan's direction for its life. And the result is either a, a drastic difference between life, eternal life, and eternal, eternal death. And we need God's wisdom. What's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? What, what kind of soil is there? We're going to be looking at a lot of topics from throughout the summer. Solomon is, is laying out proverb after proverb, pithy, pithy little statement after pithy little statement. And he's dropping those little seeds into a heart. And if that heart is cultivated, 
then it's going to and it's going to be good. But like Christ's parable, like Christ's parable in the New Testament, some ground might be rocky soil. Some ground might be full of weeds. Some ground might be packed down really tight, really hard, so that the seed cannot get in and grow and bear fruit. What kind of heart? Are you just vulnerable? Are you the naive that, that Satan is saying, turn in here, think like I think, think like this, and you can't see the counterfeit? We, uh, as Christians, need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, folks. And that's only going to take place when we cultivate a heart of humility, understanding personal responsibility, and the fear of the Lord. And we as God's children have to recognize God's wisdom. We have to internalize that and we have to work it out in our life. I like what uh, Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan. Here's what he said. He said, a wise man's heart is a library to hold the word of God. And I will say it's the library for the wisdom of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day i thank you lord for the challenge of this sermon i thank you lord for giving us answers to life that things are not just relative that we have fixed principles that we can govern things by that we can judge and uh, know absolute truth by We thank you for those things. Now, Lord, help us to be discerning in a world that is confusing. Help us to be able to contrast and compare the two. And be able to to see this is true wisdom and this is a counterfeit. May we never be caught captive by Satan's lies. By Satan's thinking. And Father, may we recognize it as sin if we do. And repent and turn away from that. We recognize so many other sins and, and we, we stay away from those sins. But sometimes our thinking, our the philosophy, there's this world. We just think we can just go along and, and have no consequences. Lord, help us to be discerning. May we apply these things to our life today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.